This is the SciDev.net podcast for science news and views on global development. I'm John Eskham. Last December, the world saw one of the most important breakthroughs in the history of climate response. The UN member countries gathered in Paris to discuss and approve a global deal for emissions reductions. The deal is poised to give a critical push towards reducing the impact of global warming in the coming decades and beyond. As 2016 starts, how will things pan out? This is the beginning of the end of coal. We can't achieve a two-degree world, let alone a one-and-a-half-degree world, with new coal-fired power stations, with new coal mines. There will be some of those in developing countries, but basically this spells the end of coal. From international frameworks to the groundwork, we discover how measuring weather is important to inform climate science and gain better insights into regional climate patterns. If you just simply look at the network of observing stations around the world as kind of dots on the map, you can see that some areas have relatively very good coverage compared to others. We then travel to South Africa, where we visit the continent's first open science forum, organised to raise global attention on African research. This is the system that you've got, and it's a combination of a reactor and... It's a, it's a photobioreactor, which is essentially a long upright tube where you have uh, CO2 bubbling through from the bottom so that the algae can suck it up and grow from it. And we speak to a photographer who travelled the world to capture the changing state of the planet's ice. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast where we look at science through the lens of development. I'm John Eskam. The 21st UN Conference of Parties, where countries discuss global climate response, was held last month in Paris. It resulted in a final agreement that was cheered by many as a great success, but critics point out that the problem of climate change is far from solved. Our multimedia producer Lou Del Bello was at the negotiations and joins us here in the studio to tell us more. Hello there, Lou. Hi, John. Good to be back. So, Lou, how was Paris? Um, well, John, the document was a culmination of over 20 years of work uh, for the UNFCCC, and until the final hours of the meeting, there was no certainty on the outcome. So you can imagine the tension there was unbelievable. Though it's also true that the endorsement of so many heads of state, including Obama, really raised up from the very beginning. And I have one memory of the meeting. I was in a media room listening to the presentation of the final draft with a group of colleagues. And the media room is huge and we were all silent uh, listening to the translation of the speech in our headphones. And towards the end, uh, this speech was so powerful that the interpreter's voice broke and many of us were really almost in tears. It was really, really powerful. Gosh, right. So, yeah, yeah. how was the actual agreement? I mean, from a technical point of view, what does that look like and uh, what were the reactions? Well, the agreement was received very, very positively. Straight after the release of the last draft, the one that would be later approved, I did this interview with Michael Jacobs, a climate policy and energy expert at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the environment. And here's what he said 
So assuming that the draft agreement is adopted by the meeting of the, uh, of the climate change conference this afternoon, we have a, a really historic achievement. This is the first time that every country in the world, 196 countries, will have agreed to take action together to combat climate change. And they've done so not simply uh, now, but they've said in the future we have to take greenhouse gas emissions out of the global economy altogether. We have to get down to net zero greenhouse gas emissions, which is exactly what the science has been telling them, but what in the past they've not been prepared to do and they've set themselves a, a mechanism for doing this which is that every five years they will produce new plans and they have to be more ambitious than the last until they achieve the goal so this is an agreement which is meant to last for a long time into the future until we have got emissions down to zero that is really remarkable achievement can you tell me more about what's in this draft for developing countries what are the main achievements or the promises so developing countries have got what they, in a way, they most wanted, which is that the developed countries have acknowledged that they must lead in taking action against climate change. They are responsible for almost all the climate change that has currently occurred because it's developed countries that put the greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. And the developing countries were absolutely determined to ensure that the developed countries accepted their responsibility for leading on the, prob on the issue, and they have done that. But this also requires developing countries to act. And because developing countries are already doing this now, this is an acknowledgement that the world is different. We're not in a world where there are only developed and developing countries. There are many different kinds of countries and everybody is now acting. So this is a good balance between the interests of developed and developing countries. In addition, the developing countries are going to get money. They're already going to get uh, 100 billion in climate finance, both public and private, by 2020. And the developed countries have said they will scale that up after 2020. And in a more predictable way, which many of the developing countries Want. And for the most vulnerable, the countries that are going to suffer damage and loss, as well as uh, what we're seeing now, there is going to be a mechanism that is going to address that. And of course, for the for the countries that that are, are uh, low-lying islands, they have achieved this remarkable addition to the goals of the agreement, which is that we should be trying to hold global warming to one and a half degrees. Uh, over pre-industrial levels, not just two, because they said, look, at two degrees, we're going to go under the water. And that, for them, was a huge political achievement. The small countries have been moving the big ones. Um, and that's what this multilateral process can, can do, and it's rather remarkable. Um, so how about the legal framework of this agreement? Can you tell me more? Is it robust enough? And what are the challenges? This is a legally binding agreement. It requires all countries to take action, but it doesn't tell them what they have to do. So what they have to do will be up to them, so-called nationally determined, and almost all of them will put this into domestic law. They will write policies and regulations and taxes and so on, which will be in domestic law, so will be binding at national level. So it's a mixture of international, uh, international law and national law, so it will be binding. And in the past, we know that even non-binding commitments of this kind, countries follow. So I don't really think there's any risk that countries won't do the things that they've now committed themselves to do. And this agreement does require them to come back every five years, tell us what they've been doing, and to, and to take on a new round of commitments. Uh, there are things that developing countries are demanding in terms of finance, in terms of also tech transfer, um, to be able to develop in a cleaner way. And do you think this draft agreement contains the basis to do so? It contains some provisions on technology cooperation which will help developing countries. But the, the real issue is not in the agreement on technology. Technologies are now developing very fast and this agreement will accelerate that. It's clear now as a result of this agreement where the markets will be in the future. They will be in low carbon technologies. And if you're a technology company, you can see here the future. This is your future. And that is what will drive technologies not just in developed countries but in developing countries. And increasingly, of course, the emerging economies are producing those technologies themselves. And so the, the, the technology 
issue was never really going to be solved by an agreement. It'll be solved by the economic activity that follows the agreement. And that is much more likely now than it was. Does this new text have any weaknesses? Right now, I don't think this agreement could really have been stronger. And it is much stronger than it was expected to be. Um, it makes very clear what countries have to do. It helps the developing countries, it has a stronger goal, it has a very strong cycle of commitments, um, and, in, and this is at the very, very top end of the ambitions of many of us who came to this conference. In terms of what can be done domestically in developing countries, many of them have uh, economies that are based on oil, on coal, on fossil fuels. How this agreement will create a good framework for laws to be implemented and what are the challenges? The coal industry will not react well to this agreement. This is the beginning of the end of coal. We can't achieve a two-degree world, let alone a one-and-a-half-degree world, with new coal-fired power stations, with new coal mines. There will be some of those in developing countries, but basically this spells the end of coal. For gas and oil, they have longer. Gas and oil are more needed and have lower emissions. Um, eventually, the gas and oil industries will be smaller because they won't be able to produce. It's possible that carbon capture and storage will enable, will enable some. This is still a long way off. So this is very much in the second half of the century. And in the meantime, the renewable sectors um, uh, will grow. And so this is a very important stimulus to a, trans a shift, a transformation in the kinds of investment that go on, in, particularly in the energy and transport sectors. That was climate policy expert Michael Jacobs commenting on the Paris Agreement. And Lou, Michael describes a scenario where fossil fuels will be phased out rather quickly. Well, that's in an ideal world. But in reality, it's not that straightforward. One quite common misunderstanding is to expect this agreement to solve the climate change problem. It will not. Uh, Michael told me that had the deal been approved two decades ago, we would have had the time to avoid the impacts. But now, no, it's just too late. So then why is this called a success? I mean, it seems a bit pointless, the whole thing. Hmm. As things stand now, this is the best we could possibly achieve and a big step towards a zero-carbon economy anyway. But obviously the world will still feel big impacts. OK, so what are the steps needed to reduce these impacts then? On top of what Michael described, there is one point that really remains a major challenge. In all the models describing a low-carbon future, the so-called negative emission technologies always stop the agenda. And what are they? Can you give me some examples? It's basically a set of technologies designed to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere to help restore the balance between what we emit and what the planet can absorb. One example is afforestation. More trees on Earth mean less CO2 in the air. So it's that simple, easy well, as that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. The reality is that we need to remove much more CO2 than what trees are capable of. A technology that, at least on paper, could make a much bigger impact is the so-called biocarbon capture and storage, or BECS. The system combines the use of biomass for energy with the carbon capture technologies, which traps emissions and stores them in the ground. It seems like a good idea, but the technology is very expensive and despite being out for a while now, it's still at a very early stage. OK, but Lou, why do we have to use biomass? As long as we remove the emissions, the source shouldn't matter, should it? Well, bioenergy is important because it comes from plants, which naturally remove CO2 as they grow. 
So when they are burned for energy, they release carbon back into the air. But if you manage to trap it before it completes its cycle, then you tilt the balance towards negative emissions. So that all sounds quite promising. Well, except to produce biofuels, you need a lot of land and the right geographic and geologic conditions to store the carbon underground. If we use all our fertile soil to produce energy, there'd be conflict over food security. And due to cost, it's still really hard to imagine how BECs will be deployed at scale. So a bit of a bittersweet outlook for the world's climate. Thanks, Lou, for talking us through the story. It was a pleasure, John. Now, stay with us to learn more about how weather forecasts aid climate modelling in the most vulnerable areas of the world, next in the podcast. Reliable weather forecasting is important to understand how the climate changes. Starting from a local level, scientists compose a picture of the planet's climate and the more detailed the local information is, the more accurate the bigger picture. But as the atmosphere crosses national borders, countries have to exchange data. The problem is that many countries in the global south don't have enough funds to collect the right data. Reporter Giovanni Ottolani in Paris for a side event at COP21 investigated and sent us this interview. My name is Max Dilly and I'm the Director of Climate Prediction and Adaptation at the World Meteorological Organization, which is a United Nations agency. We are a secretariat for our member countries and our, the representatives of those countries are usually the directors of the meteorological services. Talking about climate change and weather forecasts, why is cooperation between countries so important? No individual country can get the global picture that's needed in order to anticipate what the weather or the climate, for that matter, is going to be in any particular place. So throughout the history of the organization, this linking together of the way observations are made so that they're made the same way everywhere, of sharing those, of putting them in models and running the models and then redistributing the output of the models. This is uh, some of the most fundamental areas of our work and has been for over a hundred years. What is the situation of weather forecasts in the developing world? Overall, I think there has been progress uh, and continues to be today in most places around the world. However, having said that, it's not uniform. And um, there, if you just simply look at the network of observing stations around the world as kind of dots on the map, you can see that some areas have relatively very good coverage compared to others. So some countries are trying to pay to maintain the costs of these systems and it's very difficult for them given that they also have many other competing priorities for their budgets. So it is a continuing struggle for our membership to maintain their systems um, and they're often frankly underfunded and we are losing stations as fast as they can be installed. And what can we do to make sure that developing countries have enough funds to have enough stations to collect data about weather? Well, one of the things that we try to impress on non-meteorologists, uh, including the negotiating teams here at the um, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, is the importance of investing in 
climate services, in observing systems, in forecasting, because the basic data that is needed uh, now and will be even more needed in the future for anticipating what's going to happen and having the tools to manage it relies on those investments. So we do everything we can to highlight uh, that this is part and parcel of the larger efforts that are going on both to monitor what's happening to the climate, monitor the composition of the atmosphere, and also to monitor the changes, and then to provide the tools, the decision support, the forecasts in order to do something about it. So it's a key message um, that we try to get across. Um, and of course, if you are not a meteorologist, a lot of these things are, you know, kind of invisible. So we have to really work to raise awareness and to educate decision makers who are not normally thinking about these things. And are there low-cost but effective tools that can be used in the Global South? I would say overall these investments are minute compared to what's at stake. So the aggregate cost even of sophisticated observing equipment, uh, I would argue, is, is a bargain. I mean, it's rounding error on the amounts of uh, money that we're talking about that are at stake either way, both for weather and climate and also climate change reasons. But, of course, some countries can have very sophisticated observations, uh, weather radars and so on. You certainly don't need that kind of level of investment to get good, effective data. And we even distribute plastic rain gauges to farmers in Africa, and they can take their own measurements, and when rainfall reaches a certain accumulated amount, they can plant uh, based on that accumulation. And we're seeing very good results where they get, over time, uh, much higher yields by using that climate information uh, than they would uh, without it. So you don't have to have a satellite receiver. Um, you know, you can have just a simple plastic rain gauge and still get some benefits. That was Giovanni Ortolani speaking to Max Dilly, Director of Climate Prediction and Adaptation at the World Meteorological Organization. Now, if COP21 has been big in 2015 and has paved the way for global emissions reductions in the coming decades, another event that took place in South Africa last December is also poised to trigger long-lasting change. It's Africa's first open science forum, where researchers from 45 countries showcase their inventions to the public in an effort to engage decision-makers into African research. Reporter Teresa Taylor took a tour of the science fair and discussed the importance of open data for the advancement of science. She sent us this report. This is the system that you've got, and it's what, a combination of a reactor and... It's a, it's a photobioreactor, reactor, which is essentially a long upright tube where you have uh, CO2 bubbling through from the bottom so that the algae can suck it up and grow from it. And at the bottom you have this pool of circulating water, there's a couple of paddles that are supposed to help the water flow. So there's, because there's so much agitation in the system, you get a lot of transfer of nutrients and CO2 for the algae to grow. I'm here at Africa's first Open Science Forum. All around are projects that the organizers hope will make people pay attention to African research. Researcher Marianne Chetty and her team from Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University have built a reactor that helps algae grow faster. 
there's a bigger purpose to the research. We have a key concern about cleaning up coal, uh, coal dust, uh, which is a waste product coming out of the industry. South Africa is one of the biggest coal producers in the world. And here you have some uh, algae and you have some coal dust and the combination of the two creates uh, a product called Colgi. And uh, that Colgi is a clean burning fuel. So at the moment what we're trying to do is we're showcasing the research of the cultivation and the, the end product to try and promote the use of biofuels and to get to a point where we can commercialize the technology on a large scale. And that's what the organizers of this event are hoping will happen, that the world takes notice of African science. Naledi Pandor, the South African Science and Technology Minister, says she hopes the effects of this open science forum will be long-lasting. Well, I hope out of uh, the meeting uh, in the next two days, the uh, delegates will say, wow, science is happening in Africa. But Africans as well will have the confidence to acknowledge that we are actually capable of doing really good science. And we can partner with all these people and all these organizations. We don't have to lock ourselves away. It doesn't have to be a good secret. We actually have opened ourselves up to the world. And uh, hopefully we'll build on that. But the issues that were discussed and the announcements that were made pertain to more than just African science, but are of global importance. The World Academy of Sciences, the International Council of Science, the Inter-Academy Partnership and the International Social Science Council came together at the forum under the name Science International to release an accord on how scientists should deal with big data. Okay, maybe you can just tell us your name and position. I spoke to Geoffrey Bolton of the University of Edinburgh who headed up the team that produced the accord. I mean, big data is somewhat of a buzz term, you know, you, you hear it being thrown around all the time and when it's put in a sentence it's almost immediately assumed that this must be something important or cutting edge. I mean, what does big data mean for you? Well, big data, the idea is quite specific. Uh, and that is that there are devices that acquire data and produce it at a formidable rate. So that big data means a, a tremendous rate at which data is coming into, let's say, a computer or a system that acquires it, and a great volume, and also very often considerable diversity. So, for example, the record of the retail exchanges that take place in retail outlets all over the world is actually fed into companies that buy it from the retail outlets and then make it available back to the retail outlets in designing how they should market their products. That's big data. It's a phenomenal but amount But there's of data. also semantic data, data that's more than just facts and figures, but spells out ideas and solves problems. Uh, and in a sense, that's the big challenge for science. We can get meaning from combining linked data. It presents profound opportunities and it also provides profound opportunities for citizens because we can we can if we have a semantic web or a, a web of linked data you ask the web a question and it doesn't just doesn't deliver a large number of documents to you it, instead it delivers an answer to your question
Sure, because I mean, obviously, big data has been fairly controversial in the way it links into other things, not just science, but into people's personal security. And, you know, you use the example of maybe retail, you're buying something online, and people maybe often refer to that as exhaust data. It's like yeah. fumes coming off the back of a car while you're trying to live your life. But you're saying you can link that together and have bring meaning from those kinds of things. And of course what you've just said implies that yet again Pandora is here with her box. Uh, innovations, new knowledge can be used for good or for ill. And it's the Accord lays out a set of principles for how science can use big data to the best of its abilities. It's a statement about ethics, if you like. It says that the role of the scientist is to bring benefit to the societies of which they're part, because of course they're publicly funded. At the heart of this is openness of data. And then it goes on to say open data is crucially important in exploiting this digital revolution. Openness is the responsibility of individual scientists universities and institutes, of those who publish scientific data, um, of those who fund science. There are some processes scientists should follow. Uh, always citing the person who originated the data, even though you yourself might use it in quite a different way. And the third part really is to identify there are boundaries to openness, which are in relation to personal confidentiality and privacy, in relation to safety and security, um, and in relation to legitimate commercial work because... Uh, but some studies have estimated that only about 1% of the world's research output is generated in Africa. But Science International want to start an African data platform. African data platform, the purpose of which is to enhance the skills in, embedded in Africa such that Africa will be able to exploit this extraordinary event in, in human history to its own benefit. And of course also at the same time to contribute to the international effort to create a better world. Sure, so it's not necessarily just about, oh, we've created this new thing or we've, we've got this massive percentage of unique research, but actually perhaps using data to answer problems in, in, a, in a specific place and to answer its own problems. Oh, yes. I mean, I think it, what is very important is for society or, the, or governments to enunciate what they believe to be, for them, crucial modern problems. For Africa, this could be solving issues of agricultural outputs, or infectious disease. All of these issues, though, are amenable, in fact, profoundly um, embedded in the capacity to utilize rich data resources. The African Data Platform aims to spread skills and hardware as well as best practice. And Science International says that through scientific unions, the physicists, chemists, mathematicians, statisticians, sociologists, and so on, they believe the big data principles set out in the Accord will spread throughout the world. That was Teresa Taylor at the Open Science Forum in Johannesburg in South Africa. Stay with us to discover how a photography project is capturing the world's glaciers before they disappear forever. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast where we put science at the heart of global development. According to NASA, glaciers are sentinels of climate change. A glacier doesn't melt slowly and steadily like an ice cube on a table. Well, NASA explains that once glacial ice begins to break down, the interaction of meltwater with the glacier's structure can cause increasingly fast melting 
and retreat. And widespread loss of glaciers would likely alter climate patterns in ways that we still can't fully understand. James Balog is an alpinist and photographer who integrates art and science to give a visual voice to the planet's changing ecosystems. With his team, he captures on camera glaciers from across the world, including those in fragile ecosystems such as Nepal and Bolivia. Reporter Giovanni Ottolani met him in Paris during the UN climate talks and sent us this interview. I'm James Balog. I'm an environmental photographer. I'm the founder and director of the Extreme Ice Survey and Earth Vision Institute. We're based in Boulder, Colorado, USA. Can you tell me something more about this organization? Well, I've been looking at systemic environmental change for 35 years worth of my career. I've been interested in how human beings impact the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, how we reshape the landscape, how our technology changes us as biological creatures. And 10 years ago, I started to work on how climate change is being visually brought alive in icy landscapes on glaciers and ice sheets. We strive to make innovative, creative, provocative visual stories about all these kinds of issues. Why is the visual medium so important? Science is profoundly important. It's the way that the human animal seeks patterns in the world and understands the world. But art is profoundly important too because it gives us as as intellects, as minds, and our hearts, and our spirits, a way to understand things in a more profound, visceral, emotional level. The art touches our hearts, it touches our minds, and if you can combine the art and the science, you have a very powerful way of you know, expressing these issues and helping people understand what's going on. Here in Paris, I'm trying to spread the message of the ice, trying to tell the story that the ice is expressing. You know, I, I often feel like I'm a how to put it, a vehicle. You know, yes, I have willpower. Yes, I'm a person with free choice to do something. But I often feel like that, as strange as it is to say, the ice in those landscapes are speaking through me and my energy. And I'm trying to channel that and put it back out into the world in a, in a place where it matters, which is why I'm talking to you right now, which is why I talk to rooms full of, of delegates here at COP21. It's very, very, very important to express what's going on in these places, out to the world. And everybody here can help amplify that story. What is Chasing Ice and what's the idea behind it? Chasing Ice is a documentary film about the Extreme Ice Survey. Uh, it came out in 2012. It's been traveling the world ever since on television, in the movie theaters, on the internet, at conferences, you know, whatever it is. And it tells of our saga, our, our pleasures and struggles and travails in trying to look at glaciers and make the story of those glaciers and what they're telling us come alive. Basically, the short story is we put out 25 time-lapse cameras. We positioned cameras permanently next to these changing glaciers. The cameras photograph every half hour or hour around the clock during daylight and they produce a, a record, a visual record of how the landscape is changing. You put those, all of those single frames together into these long extended multi-year clips. As I said, we're on eight years of this right now. And you can see these historic monumental changes in the landscape happening right in front of your eyes. You get to see something you never imagined was going on, let alone 
was possible to see. You know, you just don't imagine. You can see things like that. And there it is, the evidence, right in the cameras. What was the hardest part of this project? Mm, boy, what was the hardest part of the project? There were a lot of them. In the early stages, the hardest part was just trying to figure out technically how to produce the pictures. It was, it was difficult to design the electronics so that they could work. I'm very good with structural things and logistics and being in, in difficult environments, but electronics make me crazy. I don't like computers, actually. I live with them and I work with them and I'm dependent on them, but I don't spontaneously enjoy them in my, in my heart, you know? So it was getting the electronics to work, and that was problematic. And then subsequently, the big problem was to fund the project. It's quite expensive to do this kind of work in these very remote locations, and it's been a, at times a real struggle to keep the project financially alive. And uh, uh, we now anticipate keeping the project going forever. The scientists are telling me, you know, this is, this is now the definitive monumental historic record. You can't turn it off. We have to keep seeing what's going on and imagine what it's going to look like 50 or 100 years from now when people look back at this record and they'll say, my God, these guys caught history unfolding. Well, that's why we have to keep it alive. That was Giovanni Ortolani speaking with alpinist and photographer James Balog about the importance of preserving the world's glaciers at least in images. Well, that's it for this month. From me, John Eskam, and from our team here in London, stay with us for more news and analysis on the world of science and development. But until next time, it's goodbye. Goodbye.